This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Oh my God, it is live. Right, this is me. I am Alex at Curtain Sleep, and this is The Late Show. With me, I'm going to talk about sleep and lack of sleep and birds and why we're wrong about everything. Oh, I thought that was going to fit before the loud bit. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. All right. Well, who's with me? Who have I got online? No one. No one's there. Well, that's fine. Because I can talk to myself. Anyway, so this is Alex. Now, you find me at a really rubbish time, quite frankly, because I'm moving house tomorrow. And I'm moving... So I'm moving house tomorrow's the 23rd, so Christmas Eve Eve. And I've decided to move house um, in the morning. I have rented a van. And the people who are going to help me um, have got COVID. So it's going to be me, uh, my partner, and my two-year-old. And if you don't have children, then I'll tell you this now. They're not very good at most things. They cannot help. They are not very helpful at moving, especially they've got tiny little hands. And as such, are very useless moving partners. So really, it's me and my partner and Van. So tomorrow should be absolute chaos. Um, and before that, though, I've got a radio show to do. Now, the difficulty of my life, if I may now just use this platform to complain for a moment, because what else is a platform for? I also have really been struggling with uh, sleep. Now, this isn't new, to be honest. This is um, pretty par for the course for me. Um, I have always never been a very good sleeper. Um, ever since I was a kid, um, you know, my earliest memories as my mum just exasperatedly going, right, do you know what? You're not going to go to sleep. Fine. Here's a big pile of books. Stop coming downstairs. Be quiet and leave us alone. Oh, Ollie Haley's here. Hey, Ollie Haley. Ollie Haley, the very handsome and very intelligent um, former estate agent, though. So you can't have everything. Ollie Haley has joined us. Um, he'll be chatting to me later on. Presumably his legions of fans and I presume that his legions of fans have some uh, overlap with the fans of uh, the erstwhile One Direction. I'm sure they'll join when he um, starts talking. But anyway, it's lovely to see Ollie there. Um, what was I saying? Oh, God, I forgot what I was saying. Right. So I've always been a terrible sleeper. And my mum basically dealt with it by going, right, here's a big pile of books. Surely you'll fall asleep. I didn't. I just read all the books. And then just stayed awake and reread the books and then got off a got off the bed and went to the bookshelf and got more books. So I learned to read pretty well, but uh, going to sleep, never really learned the skills. And uh, those of you who are familiar with me on Twitter will know that I um, hold sleep in very poor regard. And I would really very much like to biohack myself to get rid of my need for sleep. So... Um, but it did lead me down a bit of a rabbit hole. And so this is kind of the first part of the um, first part of the show. 
uh, really, where I talk about the things that have distracted me. Because this, after all, as I forgot to say, because I was distracted by other things, this show is called Alex's Procrastination Station. And this episode is called The Worst of What is Thought and Said. I'll explain that later on, if I remember, which I might not. But first of all, let's talk about the things that have distracted me this week with a sound effect. And then we have a crow. And the reason for the crow sound effect is because um, I have, among other things, been distracted by birds. But the first thing I'm going to talk about is I had a little look into uh, sleep because I was getting very little of it. I've been, I even blogged about it, but I've been, um, you know, to the point where I thought I was going a little bit mad. You know, I've been waking up multiple times during the night. Um, I've been struggling to stay focused and no matter, and, and it's come at a point where I've tried to reduce my caffeine in, in, intake, which is just making it worse, to be honest with you, because at least the days I was sort of like riding the brown wave of happiness, but you know, no coffee after lunch is a tall order for somebody who frequently abuses their adenosine receptors. Anyway, so I ended up looking into sleep and I ended up looking into people who claimed not to need very much sleep. And I know what you're thinking, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher claimed um, not to need, um, well, really any sleep at all. She said about four hours a night. Some people say it's two. I read that it was four. It was very little sleep anyway, given that we're supposed to get what, between seven and nine hours? And so um, I had to look into this and apparently there's a tiny mutation in a gene called DEC2 that was present in people who are short sleepers. Um, And what that means is that these people can sleep about four hours a night and not receive any cognitive impairment. And um, there was a team that um, compared the genome. Oh, Joseph Wright's here. Hello to Joseph Wright. There are three people listening. Our house building. There's four people. Excellent. Hello to the four of you. So I'm just talking, uh, for those of you who just arrived, I'm just talking about my inability to sleep like a normal person. And I was just, uh, hi, Joe. And I was, um, and I did some research into people who don't need very much sleep. And it turns out that there's a genetic um, abnormality, a genetic mutation in the gene DEC2 um, that was present in people who are short sleepers and who can sleep for about four hours with no cognitive impairment. Now, I wish I were one of those people. Now, I think I can, I don't think I need as much sleep as other people, but four hours would absolutely kill me. Unless I do need four hours and I'm just oversleeping. I tend to just caffeinate. To be honest with you, I don't really remember the last time I wasn't uh, wasn't tired. But what's interesting is they did it on mice, and so uh, they bred mice to express the same mutation. And the rodents slept less, but they performed just as well as regular mice when given physical and cognitive tasks. I mean, what cognitive tasks you actually give to a mouse, I don't know, to be honest with you. It's hardly going to do Sudoku, is it? It's a mouse. Anyway... So, but it, but it led me down a little bit of a, uh, bit of a rabbit hole in terms of getting better sleep, uh, you know, and I've tried things like, you know, listening to sleep stories and stuff, but I get carried away on the narrative as gripping as it isn't, you know, any sort of voice and I'm immediately listening, you know, as an English teacher, I'm kind of hardwired for narrative. But anyway, going back to this article I read from BBC Future, um, apparently, um, one of the best things to do for you crap sleepers out there, one of the best things you can do is um, wake up at a regular time. Your body craves regularity. So if you keep changing your sleep pattern, you will have terrible sleep. And also, apparently, it's a good thing to ignore society's views on sleep. There is a social view that short sleeping is a good thing and that it should be encouraged. Um, You know, in the Margaret Thatcher, you know, top CEO's example, 
um, gets used quite a lot. But apparently we should get the amount of sleep that we feel like we need. Some, you know, Mariah Carey needs about 15 um, hours of sleep, allegedly. But I imagine the longer she's asleep, the better for the rest of us, to be honest with you. Final thing I'll say about sleep is that it led me down the little rabbit hole of uh, sleep chronotypes. Now, I haven't fully looked into this, so maybe it's absolute bunkum, but there are these four major sleep chronotypes that dictate uh, your optimal sleeping times. And by that, I mean duration, but also when you should be going to bed, when you're at your kind of cognitive peak. And uh, there's a sleep doctor, an American one, obviously, um, who's named them after animals. And, uh, you know, so you've got, for example, um, bears that broadly follow daylight. So they just sort of sort of sleepily stumble madly out of bed at about sort of dawn times, about 7 a.m. And then it gets dark and they get all grouchy and they go to bed because they're bears and they're big and stupid. I'm a dolphin, apparently, which means that I never really switch off. Great. So I'm always going. I have disturbed sleep. I get about six hours a night, correct, if I'm lucky. And I'm intelligent, which is great, I suppose. Nice to be intelligent, but apparently I just won't get very good sleep ever. So I'm just just stuck. So that's good. So according to science, I'm basically screwed when it comes to sleep, which is just great. The good thing is, though, when you have a child, sleep deprived anyway. So I'm really ahead of the curve. Anyway, what else have I been distracted by? Well, I was also distracted by birds. So it was my birthday on, um, when was my birthday? Wednesday? I don't know what day it is now. No, that's a lie. It was Saturday, Saturday the 18th of December. It was my birthday. I'm born a week before Jesus, which makes me, I suppose, the Messiah if he was premature. Um, and actually, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Now, so um, I, those of you who follow me on Twitter will uh, know how much I really like birds of prey. And my partner, bless her, um, took me to, well, she said she took me, I drove, but uh, we went to the Raptor Foundation in Huntingdonshire, um, at St. Ives in Huntingdonshire, not the other St. Ives, too far away. Now, uh, what um, what I did was, um, was I looked around and I love, I love birds and it's the peregrine falcon I'm always really interested in, but I, I was struck not only by uh, the juvenile peregrine that I saw, which apparently had cognitive impairments, and actually that was pretty evident from seeing it. Um, but there was one particular owl as well. I think it was an Indian eagle owl, and it had these ridiculous um, amber eyes, and they were like quick and primeval, this kind of deep burnt amber. And they they gazed at me as though to say that it wasn't that they didn't understand my humanity, but that they ne- it never needed to in the first place because it existed on such a different plane that there was there was nothing we had in common other than having eyes but these eyes were so different from mine so as to be so unrecognizable you know and that plane that that uh, bird exists on you know is so different from the plane i exist on that plane that bird exists on is one of wildness of hollow boned twitchy energy reaction and action suddenness you know the tip tap of bird heart sniper grade vision flashes in the crepuscular shadows and and it's and it's the unknowableness of this bird, you know, that I found myself really drawn to. And likewise with the peregrine, there was something so so twitchy in its movements, something so um, so naturally predatory that I couldn't relate to, but I found myself fascinated by. And so I've, I really have recently been drawn to, and maybe it's because I'm teaching Tess of the Durbervilles as well. 
but I'm really drawn to the wildness of the um, of the natural landscape. And so this has been another rabbit hole that I've I've gone down. And, um, and it got me to think about the idea of kind of primeval wildness and to, to question whether or not we are naturally hierarchical. And this is going to lead to, uh, to the main gist of today. I'm going to talk a lot about hierarchies. And it got me to think a lot um, about, you know, whether the world is, is naturally, is, you know, to be natural, is, is that wildness? Is it chaos? Is there any natural order? Or is that just stuff we we impose upon the world? You know, I've t I've blogged before about the idea of the rhizome, and I talk uh, I've spoken to Tabitha McIntosh um, on her radio show about the rhizome and my explorations into postmodern theory related to the same. And so I really started to think about the way the world is is arranged, you know, and the way that we tend to to rank other things in accordance to ourselves. Uh, in relation to ourselves, rather, and I, and I and seeing this bird, I started to think, but 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 we're not even in the same hierarchy. There's there's no hierarchical relationship between us. You know, you you exist, bird, on a completely different level, on a completely different plane. Now, I haven't fully explored this thought, so it might be absolute nonsense. But in any case, what kind of started to turn me towards today's topic, hierarchy, was something I saw about the Catholic Church. And so I'm now going to hop from birds, from the perch of the bird to the perch of the Catholic Church. And I saw um, an article from the New York Post in which uh, Pope Francis um, says that sins of the flesh, so sins involving lust, aren't that serious. Now, growing up Catholic, I was led to believe that they definitely were and that you certainly shouldn't be um, doing anything naughty with your body lest you be cast into the eternal flame. But according to um, according to Francis, sins of the flesh are not the most serious. And I quote, sins of the flesh are not the most serious. The 84-year-old religious leader said, sex regard said regarding sex outside of marriage. Top transgressions instead include pride and hatred, according to Reuters. Now, I find this quite interesting, the idea that um, he, he's now ranking sins now, obviously, we know that murder, for example, as sins go, is, you know, and if we were just thinking about the nature of evil from a secular perspective, evil, you know, murder is worse than, say, for example, stealing 2p from Boris Johnson, you know. There's, there's, there's levels of, of morality, I think, you know, it's, I think it's pretty easy to argue that. But we... Um, but but it's interesting that he's um, he said that sins of the, sins of the flesh aren't that serious, particularly given that there was a member of the church. I forget what rank this member of the church was. I was like maybe an archbishop. I forget without looking at the thing. I'm not going to look at the thing. But um, who resigned because he had an affair, which prompted Francis to say, "Well, actually, lust. Yeah, it's a sin. Fine, it's not the worst sin." So it's interesting that he came out with that, given that one of his church, uh, a prominent ranking member of his church, said that. But it got me to think, um, but partly because I tweeted this rather, uh, rather um, in a rather silly mood, I, I retweeted the uh, the article with my caption, Sin Bloom's Taxonomy. And I started to think about uh, Bloom's Taxonomy. Um and I, and I started to think about, uh, you know, how how we, um, you know, with Bloom's taxonomy, 
we we turned it into um, a hierarchy when in reality I don't think Bloom ever really meant it to meant it to. But what I'm quite interested to see, and I'm wondering if anyone wants to kind of call in at this point, and I am um, I am going to get Ollie um, to call in later on, but um, I wondered if anyone would like to text in, um, and also this might prove that I can actually be heard. Um, presumably, someone would have told me by now, um, but I would love to see um what order people think that sins go in what is i so here's my first question i wonder if i can actually type it into the chat myself actually let's have a look at this what is the least worst sin so i'd love to see some answers in the chat like i want to know like i want to know something that's still a sin so something that's still bad but what's like the least worst sin wrong answers only what is the least worst sin? So if you want to share your answers in the chat, or if you wanted to call in and briefly share your ideas, ah, here we go, Joe Yu. Ah, yes. Uh, as an aggregate student in Shropshire, once attended a veterinary lecture at Cambridge, same thing, not sins obs, but owls versus people. Ah, yes, owls versus people. Which, well, Joe, which are better? Owls or people? Because I think it's owls, right? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Right. We are kindred spirits and I shall talk to you more on Twitter from now on because you clearly talk a great deal of sense. Um, absolutely. Owls are much better than people. Although I did learn at the Raptor Foundation that owls are apparently really stupid. But in their defense, so are people. Um, other, well, what is the least worst sin? Oh, I would love to see some examples of, um, of sins that are, you know, only slightly rubbish. But in the meantime, in the meantime, I am going to talk um, a little bit about uh, Bloom's taxonomy um, before I start talking about uh, hierarchy and, um, and you know, why human beings like to rank things, making a weak cup of tea. God almighty. Well, I tell you what, my Irish relatives would rank that pretty high, actually, probably just below adultery. Actually, I would say probably just below having sex with everybody else on the farm. Um that's where I think they put that. I can imagine my granny going, God, you've made a weak cup of tea. How could you do that? I can't believe you've done that. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, making a weak cup of tea might be fine for English people, but uh, I don't know, my Irish relatives, well, they'd have your head. But um, absolutely, making a weak cup of tea, weak tea, definitely purgatory. We've been there, haven't we, Joe? We have been there. So I also, I want to talk about Bloom's taxonomy because, um, and actually this might be, do you know, I'm going to ask uh, Ollie, to uh, to call in now actually because i want to talk to ollie a little bit about uh, blue's taxonomy and i want to change the structure of the show a little bit um in the sense that i think i'm going to get ollie um involved um a bit more than i'd um, originally intended so ollie um if you wouldn't mind uh, calling in um i want to talk to you a little bit about uh, bloom's taxonomy and we're going to get you in right here we go ollie are you there? Good, good evening. Can you hear me? Ollie, splendid. Yes, I can. I have got ever so slight latency on my end, so please do bear with me. Right. So, first of all, when you were training, were you familiar with um, Bloom's taxonomy? I was. It was introduced to me quite early on in my training year, as you might expect. Um, and it was then repeatedly... Um, reintroduced at various points right so what were you told about it like how to use it as a teacher um i seem to recall uh 
being told that to use it as a as a as a sort of framework for um generating learning objectives mm. and also um in terms of questioning as well you know make sure that when you question when you when you question in the classroom when you question the students work up through bloom's taxonomy you know go go through each stage um and i never really got on board with the whole thing to be okay. honest I, why not? Uh, my issue was that, and I think you talked about this earlier, about it becoming a hierarchy when actually it wasn't really intended to. I don't mm -hmm. think Bloom originally intended for it to become a hierarchy, but knowledge was almost demoted mm -hmm. and devalued as something which was, um, you know, at the bottom, at, when actually I think that in order for you to do everything else, which is in the taxonomy, what is it like evaluate, analyze, synthesize, all that stuff, you need you need to have all of that is underpinned by knowledge. Um, so you could argue on the one on the one hand that you know knowledge is foundational; it's at the bottom, and everything else is built on top of that. But I don't actually think that that's how a lot of people tend to use blooms. Mm. Um, I could be wrong, but I just felt that it really devalued knowledge. Um, and I also found that the, using it to generate learning objectives was odd because you'd say um, you know so you'd have one learning objective to know this. Uh, the next learning objective would be to analyze this, to evaluate this. And I just found them really, really hard because I thought, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? And the language is really difficult. You know, by the end of the lesson, we will all be able to evaluate this. Um, and it was just it was just really odd. I never, never really got on with it. Right. Yeah. And then this is the thing with Bloom's taxonomy um, is that it was used to inform learning objectives, wasn't it? So how do you feel about learning objectives? Uh, how would you construct one? How, how do I personally feel about learning objectives? I don't tend to use them, to be honest. Um, I, I, am much, I, I much prefer uh, almost like learning questions or big questions. Right, I, much yeah. I much prefer that as a um, benchmark for the success of a lesson. So if all, if all my students at the end of the lesson can answer this question in some way, then I know that obviously I have taught them well. If they can't answer it, I probably need to go and have a long, hard look in the mirror. Um, I don't like, I find learning objectives quite nebulous um, and difficult to measure. So I'm, I don't, don't like them. And I think there's a, um, a bit of a, a swerve towards big questions and maybe a way from learning objectives uh, recently. Hugh Ogilvy, I might invite him to call in actually. Uh, oh, that would be fabulous. Term. It would be fabulous, wouldn't it? Because I reckon he's got a voice like toast being buttered. <laughs> just, uh, you know, you know, um, you've heard Toby's voice, haven't you? And that sounded exactly. Oh, Toby's got a Toby's got a great voice. It's incredible, isn't it? It's such an incredible voice. And Tabitha McIntosh has got an incredible voice as well. Oh, she's got a good and voice. I'm, but this is the thing. It's the thing. Do you do that thing where you imagine people's voices in? You know, when they when you read their tweet when you read the tweets. Yeah, and Alex, you you were you were one of the people actually who I was right. uh, I did that a lot with you with your tweets, and then I first heard your voice, and it was it was um it was a, a much more magical experience. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, it, well, I I found that you had a very um you've got a, a good strong English teacher voice. Thank you. It's a good voice. It's, um, it carries is what I've been told. So um, my um, ECT, so I'm an ECT mentor. She teaches next door to me, and I feel very sorry for her. I'm actually quite far away from my microphone now, and I don't imagine it makes much of a difference. 
Um, yeah, it really carries. It tends to resonate. Um, I'm surprised, actually. So my two-year-old's asleep, and I'm surprised I haven't woken her up with all of my booming. Anyway, but yes, it's interesting. I love, I love um, guessing what people's voices are going to be like. Huge I do, and I, 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 I love, I love um, thinking about voices and faces, particularly Ooh. where voices don't go with faces. Like who? Well, I can't think of any specific examples at the minute, um, but I. I I often look at someone's, you know, picture or whatever on Twitter and you mm. think, oh, I bet they sound like this. You know, I bet they've got a really mm. you know, deep, resonant voice. But actually, then they come, they have quite a soft, <laughs> a soft Jeff voice. just said Mike Tyson. Who well, is exactly. Who has really lisping high voice, hasn't he? A very soft-spoken in, at very times. Soft-spoken, and yet he'll bite you, literally bite you. Literally he? bite you. Um, so, yeah, I, it's interesting because my, my journey has actually been to kind of make peace with my voice. I always hated it. And it's probably because I'm the only one who speaks like this, really, I think, that of people I know. It's, I don't even know where it's come from because I should have a Northampton accent and I don't. I don't know where No, it's you happened. don't. You don't. And I don't think there's any person, actually, I, I, I've never, certainly I've never met anyone in my life who, who says about their own voice that they like it. This is true. I like yours. I think you've got a very pleasant voice. I'd listen oh, well, to thank you. you. <laughs> there we go. But I suppose, do you know, I read about this and apparently it's because in our own heads, we get much more resonance. In our heads, we're Ian McKellen. But like outside, we've got all that nasal quality mm. that we didn't have. Um, you know, oh, Nas's voice. Yeah, do you know, Nas is really nasal, I think, but he's got a wonderful hook, hasn't he, to his voice. Um, but it does resonate. You're absolutely right. I love I love Nas's voice. He's probably my favourite rapper, apart from Black Thought. Um, but yes. Um, so anyway, I've kind of changed the order of things, but I wanted to talk a bit about hierarchy. And I thought, um, Ollie, I'd have you sort of as my co-pilot, if you'd like. Okay. While, um, while I'm talking about hierarchy and I'm going to talk about hierarchy in a really sort of general sort of way, um, first of all. But I'm going to sort of relate my research to teaching, if that's all okay. right. Um, well, it's going to have to be all right because I'm in charge. So um, but so what I thought, first of all, is I talk a little bit about hierarchies and in general. So first of all, you know, the thing with the hierarchy is someone's got to be on top. Right. Mm. So I looked, first of all, at, like, how do people get to the top of a hierarchy? And Are you going to talk about the Peter Principle here? I am going to talk about the Peter Principle okay. later. Okay, okay. Because I, I love the Peter Principle. It's like a sitcom trope, but real. <laughs> like, have you, have you, had you heard of it before I mentioned it? I had. I, I had come across it, um, but I did have to, in, 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 in advance of the show, just mm-hmm. remind myself what it was, but I had yes. when I, when I when I read it, I thought, oh yeah, I definitely remember reading about that. Have you looked at the Dunning Kruger effect? Uh, yes, I know what that is as well. Yeah, because I'm going to link the two together because I think they're definitely bedfellows, and I think we can definitely have a lot of fun talking about them later. Oh, absolutely. So the first thing um, I found out basically was that to get to the top of a hierarchy, you either need to have what's called prestige, which is basically having skills or knowledge that others don't. Because then they will position themselves underneath you in the hierarchy um, because they'll want to learn from you and they'll kind of look up to you and they'll want to feed off your knowledge. So that's almost a way to have yourself elevated within the hierarchy. The alternative seems to be what's called dominance, 
which is you take your position by a threat or by force. And okay. that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The two of them. Now, what's interesting is that evolutionary speaking, they seem to be rather distinct. They seem to be like one or the other. Um, but what I started to think about was whether or not one could use one's prestige to get other one to uh, get other people to do the dominance for you. For example, like you could use your superior knowledge to manipulate people into doing the dominance. And I wondered if that was a particularly um, dark side of hierarchy. But I want to link it to education. I want to see what you think about this. And I want to see what people in the chat think about this as well. So if we've got prestige and dominance, could we argue that dominance is the sort of traditional approach where the teacher in the class hierarchy takes control of that class by force? Could we agree that? Um, I think that, I think that you, there's an argument for it. Because it's automatically assumed, isn't it, that as the teacher, when you walk in, you are in control. That is your space. Um, and although you're not using, you know, physical force, hopefully, um, mm. you are using, um, you are you are using, you know, whether it's vocal force or even mm. force of personality. In which case, yeah. I'm wondering, is there a an overlap between? dominance and prestige you know that you're using the dominance of your that's a really interesting point actually because i keep reading that they're exclusive but i seem i think there is more of an overlap isn't that what foucault was suggesting joe can you expand a bit more for us please and thank you Hugh. by the way um it's really nice we, we keep it leveled here we, we keep moving between um strata if we can but yeah joe i'd love to see what you uh, what you mean specifically that sounds fascinating um i have a very tentative grasp of foucault i started to read a few um, a few bits and pieces but please educate me um right so but then could we argue that education has moved away from that dominance and it's more about selling the teacher as an expert to learn from what do you think about that ollie totally agree totally agree mm. um and I, when I when I was a when I was in lower school, um, I always remember my headmistress in lower school being a really um, a very intimidating character, and and there was a real uh, aura of dominance, hmm. um, and you complied almost through fear. Uh, but I certainly think now the paradigm has shifted slightly, and so yeah, hmm. now it's much more about um, demonstrating your prestige in terms of your yeah your you know your subject knowledge and um you know various other things so i i i actually think that that is a really good point so yeah i would agree with that is it harder to gain one's status as a teacher via prestige though um i uh or does it no, take i don't think it is i don't think it is because i've I, so as a trainee um i would be told some days okay you are doing so I remember coming back from my second placement and finding out my timetable had slightly shifted and I was taking a class who I'd never, I'd never seen before. I'd never mm. met them. And it was, this was kind of the last term of the academic year. So they were a bit tired. They'd had a teacher throughout the whole year. Then they were going to be given me. And I walked in and the first lesson with them, it was on Macbeth and we were doing act three, scene four. Mm. And I was talking to them about this scene 
And I noticed at the end of the lesson, I was told, um, you know, did you notice you, you didn't have to do any behavior management in that lesson? And I said, oh, no, I didn't really think about that. To be honest. And they said, oh, it's, well, they said, you know, as an observer, your subject knowledge had them almost enraptured. Um, mm. So I don't think, it, I don't always think it is difficult. No, if you go in and you really demonstrate your passion and your enthusiasm and your, um, the depth of the knowledge that you have for your subject, yeah. I think actually kids can, that's a really quick way for kids to trust you and a really quick way for kids to go, he knows, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's about. He knows what he's talking about. So no, I don't, I don't think it is too difficult if you really know your stuff. Fantastic. I'm just going to pause there for two things. And I want to go back to that in just a second. Um, first of all, hello to Carolina. Hello, I'm at Heathrow. Where the devil are you going? And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Bless you. You were magnificent last time. And Chris Vowles has said, how does the rise of the student voice movement fit into this debate? Um, I'm going to have to think about it. We have to think about that, aren't we, Ollie? Um, but before mm. we do deal with that, so are we saying then, that children in the face of clearly superior expertise will willingly position themselves as inferior to the teacher in the class class hierarchy. Is that what we're saying? I think some will. I think some will. there are. Okay, so what do we do with the others? Well, I think with the others, you're trying to, uh, if, if they feel comfortable in, well, it's, it's that thing, isn't it? You know, Pygmalion effect. When uh -huh. when when you go in with um, really high expectations and you deliver content that you know is clearly over and above, um, say you've got a year nine class and you're delivering almost like A level content because it's interesting. Because why not? Then some there'll be some kids in there naturally who will rise to meet that, and, mm. and so they won't necessarily uh, they won't necessarily, I suppose, challenge your superiority, but. Mm. But actually, if they if, if they did, I you know as a teacher, I would welcome that. I would welcome someone challenging my interpretation of a poem, circling back to a hot topic of Edu Twitter recently. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would I would I would wel I would welcome that. I would welcome a student challenging my interpretation and and actually calling me out and questioning me, um, because that it, it it keeps it keeps me flexible. It keeps okay. my thinking fresh. But the thing is. You mentioned um, teaching A level stuff to year nine. Well, that was just an example. Of course, I wouldn't. <laughs> but I'm gonna. But I'm gonna take it like Paxman, and I'm gonna <laughs> hold you to it, right? Because okay. if year nine are capable of um, A level thinking, then surely our our whole curriculum is built on low expectations. Like if they can get A level, then why aren't we teaching them A level at year nine then? <laughs> because I think I think you have to be careful, don't you? I think you have to be careful not to throw too much at them. You know, you can drip feed it almost. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that you go into a year nine lesson and you talk. Uh, you know, you deliver a whole session on um, I don't know the the Blanche's insanity and streetcar named desire or something like that. But mm. but you can drip feed pieces of information to almost convey to the students you you are capable of this this is what i think you are capable of and i am giving you this information a because it's interesting and b because i think you can handle it um i, I don't think you would do that to excess but you mm. can do it um in moderation and yes. i don't think tabitha like says um well tabitha's mother says because they can't write um a level essays and hugh says i'll tell my year nines that they are like an a level class 
in terms of their levels of attention and discussion. So it's almost about saying you're on your way to this and it's about priming them for the next step, which has got to be good, right? It's about showing them that this learning is, for want of a better word, because it's a cliche, but a journey. And it's um, it's part of that journey that they're on. Um, and I like the idea. Of course, Q frames it, Hugh frames it as a compliment. Of course, he frames it as something lovely and fuzzy and nurturing, <laughs> which is why he's head of pastoral at my new school that I have invented in my mind. Um, and why Tabitha is Lord High Sith Badger. Um, but Tabitha said, yes, teach them the good bleep. Um, but yes, and I think that's really important, actually, is is, is show them a, a big range. You know, I've said before, like at GCSE, we act like teaching them, what, four texts is really hard. But they've got to read four books in two years. That's two books a year. That's even maths I can do. And it's like... Maybe that is the lowest of expectations. You know, the fact that we're saying to students, oh, you know what? We have to do two books this year. God, that's going to be hard. We do hermeneutics on trash. That's the most Tabitha thing I've ever seen written. She didn't even do caps. Um, It's inspiring to show them what could happen and it doesn't need to be what they will achieve next week. Yeah, that's a really good point from the chili bound Carolina. Absolutely. And do you know what? This kind of leads me on. So I go back to the idea of um, of children being willingly um, subordinate to a teacher because that teacher holds superior prestige slash dominance if you're a trad. Now, or not controversial. Now, but um, Hugh, I exhibit the perma smile of a sloth, not a Sith. You're definitely a Jedi. Now, so there are actual benefits to us within a hierarchy, making ourselves inferior to others. You know, if other people have the, um, if they have the prestige that we don't have, um, then we, um, we can learn from them, you know, and we're, we're pretty good at seeding um, certain rights to get other ones that benefit not just us but societies this is social contract theory and so we we see willing subordination within a hierarchy it's not just a case within a hierarchy that people will be suppressed it's that people will be willingly subordinate if it makes things uh, better i'm joining where is my outfitter goodness me you really want to be a sith you be a Sith, you, but you won't be you. So I kind of started thinking then, like, why we make ourselves willingly subordinate. And I think it is for the reasons I've just expressed. But the problem is, <laughs> careful with the social contract theory, you'll be accused of harassing a government official. Come at me. But um, but I suppose it does leave us vulnerable to the um, the Matthew effect in that, you know, if you are, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, those who have lots get more. Jesus is parable of the talents, you know. And I think that's the thing with um, with the Matthew effect is that if you are quite low in the hierarchy, your benefits, um, the benefits you reap tend not to be um, as good maybe in the long run. So 
I've been thinking a lot about hierarchy and I've been thinking a lot about hierarchy within the classroom and how it affects the teachers um, students relationships. But what I'm going to turn to after the news and after the adverts and after I've read some of these comments is I'm going to start looking at, at the hierarchy of a school in terms of its staff. Um, but before I do, let's just have a look at these. So Hugh says, I will break down the hierarchical structure with kindness and talking about the passion. Is that an REM reference, talking about the passion? Um, and then Chris Val says, is the relationship between teacher and student the relationship between Falconer and Falconer or between Falconer and Falconer's apprentice? Chris, you really know how to speak to me. Falcons, straight away. But... That's really interesting because Falconer and Falconer, uh, well, Falcon and Falconer rather, um, implies that there's always going to be a separation, no matter how, quote unquote, tamed that Falcon is, because it's always going to be a Falcon. It's always going to have the bloodlust in its eyes. It's always going to be unknowable. What a wonderfully apposite link to what I was talking about at the top of the show. So maybe it's more about falconer and falconer's apprentice i'd be tempted to say what do you think collie to, to that that chris vowles has said i i think when i first read it um yeah falconer and falconer's apprentice mm, mm. um because you are aren't you trying to um hold children as empty vessels which need to be filled with the knowledge of which we are the fonts of as teachers controversial mm. that's not actually what i think by the way but i do i do definitely think that there is a um yeah a a a parallel between that relationship, Falconer and Falconer's Apprentice. Yeah, because we ultimately want them to be able to do what we can do, but their own version, if that makes sense, make it for themselves. We don't, because then being a falcon implies that they're always going to be soaring above our heads, always unknowable. And also that we're going to have to sort of force them by whacking a hood on their head. So my answer to Chris, um, if you're doing it properly, you want them to defeat you, kill your master. Well, this is Sith talking again, isn't it? And we know how much this appeals to me. I love it when we find uh, Tabitha in particularly red lightsaber wielding mood. I feel like that's a Game of Thrones reference. Uh, and hasn't hasn't Tabitha been watching Game of Thrones recently? We've talked about Game of Thrones recently. I feel like there's a thinly veiled Game of Thrones reference. Okay, it might be both. I mean, goodness knows. She's always referencing something, isn't she? It's Socratic, you swine. (laughs) (laughs) I am a swine. I'm an uncultured swine. A philistine. Right. I think, guys, that this is a good time before Tabitha upsets me. um, A good time for us to go to um, the news and the advert. So here we go. When we return, Ollie and I are going to talk about the hierarchy of a school. And hello, Jasmine. And where an ECT fits in, if not at the bottom. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish. 
the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, the SSTA union is calling for a delayed opening for schools after the Christmas holidays because of the Omicron variant. Seamus Searson, General Secretary of the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, said... If the numbers keep going up, and it looks like that is going to be the case for some time to come, then we are not going to be in a fit state to reopen schools as normal in January. We're already hearing of schools that are not fully staffed, and parents are keeping their kids off to ensure they don't catch COVID in the run-up to Christmas. The idea that we need to keep schools open at all costs just doesn't add up. Delaying the start of the new term would give teachers more time to prepare for mitigation measures. A Scottish Government spokesman said, the Scottish Government is not considering school closures. As the First Minister has made clear, protecting the education of children and young people remains a top priority. England, a teaching union has warned of a perfect storm of Omicron-related absences, following Nadim Sahawi's letter to school leaders urging them to encourage ex-teachers back to the classroom. General Secretary of the NASUWT, Dr Patrick Roach, said, Far more action is needed to improve the current market for supply teachers, which is nothing short of a national scandal. The government must address the delays with the DBS clearances and meet the costs of DBS certification so those teachers who do return to the profession are not left paying the bill. Dr Roach said that without guarantees from the government on teachers' pay and working conditions, the teaching supply crisis will continue for some time to come. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. And we return. So we have with us the beautiful former estate agent, Ollie Haley. Hello, Ollie. Hello, Alex. Also, can I point out, um, I, I wasn't actually an estate agent. It oh. was similar. Residential conveyancer was the yes. uh, official well, title. You should start with estate agent worse somehow <laughs> right <clears throat> excuse me right so i want to talk now about hierarchies in schools but move it outside the classroom so ollie you're an ect i am whereabouts are you in the school hierarchy presumably somewhere underneath the school cat um <laughs> i would say slightly well i don't know i mean 
I was just thinking about this actually because I was I was getting ready for the question between ECT and trainee. Um, mm. I mean, I think I would put myself slightly above a trainee, um, but only ever so only ever so slightly above. Why are you I, above a trainee? Why? Yeah, because I have a certificate that says that I have QTS and they don't. Trainees suck, don't they? As well, no, they don't. No, they don't at all. But I would say um, they. I'm I'm only ever so slightly above them because obviously I don't. There might actually be a trainee who who comes into a school who is who far mm. exceeds me in terms of knowledge and talent and whatever um, and natural ability to teach and whatnot. All right. So talk to me about being a trainee. When you were a trainee, mm-hmm. do you think it prepared you for the reality of teaching as a real person? No. <laughs> Why not? No, I don't. I don't think my ITT did enough to prepare me for, and I don't think ITT across the board does enough to prepare trainees for the realities of teaching. Why not? Um, because my experience as a trainee, it was a really, really good experience. I loved it. Mm. Um, but it was very much, I would, I would plan one or two lessons that I was teaching that day. I would go in, I would teach them. And then for the remaining three or whatever periods I would be, um, doing other stuff. I'd be observing lessons. I'd be typing paperwork up or doing, or or mostly just kind of relaxing and preparing for the next, uh, set of lessons that I was doing the next day. Um, I was very sheltered is the word that I used. I feel like I was very sheltered from a lot of the administrative tasks that teachers have to do, um, mm. a lot of the deadlines that teachers are subject to, particularly with you know, uh, you know, know data collection points and things like that. Uh, also, I, I was a form tutor at, my, at the school I've just left, and the kind of pastoral responsibilities of being a form tutor are something that I had virtually no exposure to. I was attached to a form class, but... I kind of saw it as my role to just go in there and basically um, try and form relationships with the kids. I, I didn't really get involved in the actual business of being a form tutor. So when I was thrown into it myself, I found there was a lot there that I didn't know what to do, didn't know how to do it, didn't know how to deal with it, hadn't come across it before. Um, and so I, I didn't have any experience to fall back on. I didn't have any um didn't have any real clue about how I should approach these things. So I don't feel like I was adequately prepared in terms of planning and and teaching. Yes, absolutely. But all of the other bits that go alongside teaching, uh, no. Hmm. Yeah. And I must admit, I found the same thing and I'm sure other teachers will weigh in in the chat in terms of whether they thought their training adequately prepared them. I mean, maybe nothing can, but in terms of where you are now, in mm-hmm. your school hierarchy, and we have to be careful with these sorts of things. Um, I want to talk to you about the Peter Principle. Okay. Because the Peter Principle, and I'm sure everybody knows what it is, but for those who don't, is this wonderful thing, which basically says that everybody is promoted to the level of their own incompetence. So somebody could be really, really good at a job, and they're so good that they are rewarded with promotion. And that promotion requires them to demonstrate and use skills that actually they don't have. And they were promoted away from a job that they were really, really good at. And so not only do you find that you've taken somebody away from a job they were really good at, but you've promoted them into a position that they're rubbish at. And so they just stay there in that position they've been promoted to being incompetent forever. Do you think that schools, Ollie? are particularly vulnerable to this, given that the skills to be a good teacher aren't really that similar 
to the teachers, to the skills of being a good manager? Yes, I think, I think that can happen. I don't know as if it's just schools, though. I think that's I think that's the same across the board, isn't it? Because I mean, in other in other sectors, you 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 have people who go in as as managers almost straight out of university simply because they have a degree in business management. But they, you know, so on paper they have all the credentials, but actually, when it comes to doing the actual job, um, it's very the reality is very different. So, I think I think it can happen. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, hasn't hasn't there been? I could be making this up, but hasn't there, hasn't not been stories about kind of people in quite senior positions in schools who have never actually been classroom teachers? Hmm. Well, I think in some cases there's a move for certain positions to be filled by non-teaching staff, for example, like heads of year and stuff like that. And I suppose by that logic, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jasmine says leading people is definitely different than being responsible for owning yourself. And I think I'd agree because I actually hate the idea of leading people. I'm fine with leading children, you know, 30 kids at a time, but that's really different. And I would find actually leading adults pretty awful. Oh, Toby's here. Hey, Toby. Um, and Frankie as well. Hello, Frankie. Um, Holly Wilson says, I feel like my ITT allowed me to hit the ground running as an ECT. There are aspects like Ollie mentioned weren't covered, but that's what the framework supports. So broadly speaking, there are things that are covered early on in the training year, but the ECT year really is where you are made, isn't it? But you are, when you're an ECT, you are very much sort of at the bottom, aren't you? You're very much, you prove yourself. Um, Michael's school keeps trying to push me to apply for leadership roles. I'm like, no. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because ultimately, the route takes you to management. And I have no desire to be management. I don't ever want to be management. Um, I just want to stay in the classroom. And you get taken out of the classroom. And I found it one of the weird ironies of teaching, that the better you are, the more they try to take you out of the classroom somehow. Uh, Hugh says, I feel like being a form tutor is like a management position, providing tactics, how to aspire towards living your life in the right ways. Form tutors, a very weird position. Um, because it's, it's, I felt like I've been a social worker when I've been a form tutor more than anything else. Ollie, what's your experience of being a form tutor? Just to take it on a tangent. Yeah, similar. Uh, social worker, mediator, um, in, in school parent all of those sorts of things um it's quite a it's quite it's quite demanding i think to be a form tutor um I, it was actually one of the things i was really looking forward to uh, about being an ect is having my own form class um and then when i when i obviously got them i thought oh god this is this is intense this is hard because there was you get you know so many emails and and things that you have to deal with that you're trying to do on top of all the other things you have to do. It's just, yeah, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd role, but it's, it's a joyous role. It's a fulfilling role, but it's an odd one. Well, it's the first year this year um, that I've not done it actually being a form tutor. I've had two different forms that I've seen all the way through and, um, and it's been really rewarding and it's almost like there's something missing. Carolina says in Scotland, it's only 10 minutes where you take the register and pass on notices. And yet yeah, certainly seems for a lot of form tutors to be much more 
um, intense than this. Uh, Jasmine says, my role as form tutor is basically, miss, I have this issue. Can you fix it? And then I do. Yeah. Do you know, that's Jasmine, that's exactly my experience. You know, students come to you with things. And this is kind of what I meant when I talk about the training year and in some cases, the ECT, you're not really preparing you for teaching because that's one of the things as a form tutor. Suddenly, kids were saying things to me. I was going, oh, my God. Key stage five lead is the only job I've ever wanted in teaching. Tab, I can totally see where you're coming from. England, it was far more pastoral. Yeah. Um, there's a point where you might know a lot about the subject you lead and want to be able to make changes to curriculum. It might mean you need some sort of management position. Yeah, Joe makes a fair point because it's almost like if you want to affect change, you've got to do it from above. And this brings us back to the hierarchy. The problem is, though, <clears throat> is the people who end up promoted, according to the Peter Principle, are often people who are unsuited for the position because they've been promoted based on prior attainment, prior merit. So they've been really, really good at being a classroom teacher, for example. They've been really good at maybe being a secondary department. But you stick them in a middle leadership position, you stick them in a, a, an SLT position, and suddenly they, they cannot do it. Um, it's all, by the way, a form of illusory superiority, a form of cognitive bias. Um, and it leads me to the Dunning-Kruger effect. Part of the problem is, is that we don't know what we're bad at. We don't know how much we suck. Um, and actually, the worse we are at things, the worse we also are evaluating um, how bad we are at things. And so not only do we have the Peter Principle where we get promoted to levels of our own incompetence, when we're there, we think we're competent. We think we can do it. And so not only do you have somebody promoted to a position where they think they're good at it. So not only do you have somebody promoted to a position where they're rubbish at it, but they also think they're good at it. And that's a real problem because it's then even harder to oust them from it because they've become convinced of their own um, abilities. Um, and actually this, this idea of narcissism um, is actually really widespread. And I've been reading tangentially about collective narcissism and that not only do we get narcissistic um, as part of the Dunning-Kruger effect, but we get collectively narcissistic as well. We start to think that the group that we're involved with is superior to others. And so this narcissism can really, really take root and become quite dangerous. Now, to, to take this even further then, when I was thinking about hierarchy and I was thinking about our place within it, I started to think about whether we actually want to be seen as individuals or not. See, we all think we do. Nobody would ever say that they wanted to be considered just as part of a machine, just a cog in the machine, just another brick in the wall. Nobody would say that. But yet, we, I think, do want to be like other people. We don't want to be unique because to be unique means to be isolated. It means to be completely alone. We actually do want to be like other people. Now I'm ready for this to be challenged, right? But we actually would rather fit in to a hierarchy in which we are subordinate than to be cast out completely alone. We would rather cede those rights and those ideas. We would rather be at the lowest rung and be part of something bigger than we would be on our own. And this is partly because maybe, and I might be wrong here, but our identity 
comes from other people. It comes from how other people act. And we, we copy, we imitate, we as human beings, this is part of the reason for hierarchies, we are social learners. And so actually, ironically, despite the fact that we say we want to be individual, want to be our own person, we want to be unique, that uniqueness can only come from imitating others. You know, it doesn't, we can't just get that uniqueness from nowhere. Everything we do that we think is unique has been, has come from somewhere, has come from something else, and it's all been mushed up within ourselves. And our uniqueness is actually just composite parts of other people, and therefore, ironically, not unique at all. And so maybe we want to be in a hierarchy. Maybe we want to be a part of something bigger. Um, the problem with this is that it often can damage us. It can often lead to the Matthew effect. It can often lead to um, the abuse of hierarchy. Anyway, no thank you. Tab saying no thank you. What are you saying no thank you to, Tab? Uh, Jasmine says, isn't it more seeing how your unique traits fit into a vibe of a school? It'd be so boring if exactly everyone was exactly the same. Yeah, it would be. But maybe we are all more the same than we think we are. You know, we all think we're really, really unique. We all think we're really, really special. But in reality, maybe we are really, really similar to a lot of people in a lot of ways. And maybe that's why we argue so much about our differences, because it's a way for us to prove to each other that we are so different and so instead of thinking about all the things we've got in common with somebody we would rather argue about those little points of difference we would rather pick and pick and pick at those things because it makes us feel like we're different like we're unique maybe tabitha says despite this she says i despise organizational identity and loyalty and do not want to be part of anything because i'm not neurotypical you're part of this though aren't you can i can i suggest alex that as well i think oh, um the idea of being part of a hierarchy and being part of something bigger and almost kind of imitating others is is also a form of reassurance in some respects. Because I know um, from my first term that actually teaching can be quite an isolated profession in that you're in a classroom, uh, you're, you're by yourself most of the day, obviously along with the kids. Um, you might see your colleagues at you know, 15 minutes at break or whatever. But by and large, you're kind of in the classroom by yourself and you don't really know what's going on in other rooms. Um, and if you have a bad lesson, for example, you can almost feel like, oh God, I'm the only one along the corridor who had a bad lesson and I'm the only one who's getting this wrong and I'm the only one who can't, not, you know, who can't do this. And then actually when you speak to other people, you realize they are also feeling the same way. And so when you start to feel part of a collective, it, it reassures you that you are not, you know, you're not isolated almost. Mm. Yes, I see what you mean. We don't want to feel isolated, don't we? I think that's the major thing. We are social learners. I think this is really key. We we learn from each other constantly. And so we will do whatever it takes to uh, to be a part of things, even if our role within that hierarchy is being the rebel, for example. Jasmine says, like example, we have whole school routines, a silent do now behavior policy, but I take the register in my own way. I'll randomly Millie rock. We always sing happy birthday in my class. I can fit in my school, but I have flexibility. And Hugh says, I refer here to my love of rap music. Does Hugh like rap music? Um, permanent expat community represent. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing. Is It is about that tension between fitting into where we have to be in the hierarchy and doing things in our own way. We always want this trade-off, don't we? We want just enough identity to feel 
like we matter, like there's any point. Is it dancing like 10 years ago? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. But thanks for educating, <laughs> educating me, Jasmine. Um, yeah, it's almost like we need just enough identity. But that's the trade-off again, isn't it, of, of hierarchies. It's just like we have to seed certain parts of ourselves for the good of the whole. And look, I'm not going to be able to get onto, I think, in the time, um, you know, whether we can dismantle hierarchies altogether. But there certainly seems to be within the hierarchy, um, a need for us to at least have the illusion of individuality. Now, I want to move on to looking at hierarchies in a bit of a, a bit of a darker way. I want us to start thinking about hierarchies um, and whether they get abused. Oh, but before we do, Toby says, do you think some teachers, perhaps many, choose to teach because they don't want to socialise or collaborate with their peers? We claim our own autonomy, or autonomy, sorry, and isolation, at least professionally. Well, yeah, I think I agree with you. Now, if I'm going to talk completely um, personally and anecdotally, I hate doing this, I'm told. Like, I am with Tabitha on this. Like, I will almost deliberately not teach what other people are teaching just out of spite, just because I don't want to be the same. And, I'm, and I really can relate to what she's saying. Um <clears throat> And I think we all, in, in one way or another, want to feel that that sense of um, of being individual. But it's really tricky, isn't it? As, as teachers, perhaps we we became teachers because we want to individually teach. We want to pass on bits of who we are and what we know. And that's the thing is no teacher is going to teach the same lesson as another teacher, even if they're given identical resources. Toby says teachers are far less collaborative than development chemists and this is the thing is that my school we have we have really you know fully mapped out schemes of learning and still edit their own versions of the lesson and you could go and observe all the lessons going on at the same time and they would be so different no matter how much the school tries to homogenize it especially with english especially with english um look at how eugene and tab approach the poem and actually to take what jasmine says even further I didn't even do the lesson. I turned it into a piece of creative writing and I made a fictional one in which I did a seance. My dad used to say, as soon as you close the classroom door, it's entirely your own world. It's really interesting that he said that because I think my first placement mentor said exactly the same thing. Uh, I think that's such an important thing. It is your own world and it's about shaping the learning. But there is, I suppose, contra to that there is this movement in education of homogeny. There is this idea that everybody must be at the same point on the scheme of learning. Everyone must be at the same point on the roadmap or whatever. I certainly see this with multi-academy trusts. And so the nature of the teacher is hitting against what the system wants the teacher to be. I like collaborating with my colleagues. They don't necessarily want to though. I think for me, there's a fine line um, between collaborating and me telling everyone else what I want to do. Um, a very fine line indeed. Um, and there is, of course, an argument that we don't want hierarchies at all. And I read a really interesting rebuttal of hierarchies. Um, and actually, this argument goes that our education is geared towards turning children into good citizens and good workers not into informed decision makers or people with any knowledge of society beyond the tyrannical concepts of our capital democracies. 
decision making is to be ceded to experts and authorities and the people as a whole are left with token choices between pre-approved options. And we say, oh, it's always been that way because we can't imagine it any other way. And apparently, um, according to this argument, the fact the proposition that hierarchies are part of human nature should entail the following. All societies in history should have hierarchies and apparently they don't. We should also a desire to obey and we don't. Um, it should not be necessary to indoctrinate people to obey. Well, it is. Um, people left to their own devices should naturally form hierarchies. And there have been experiments like the Peckham experiment that seem to prove that they don't necessarily. Um, now, education and rhetoric kind of teaches us and our children that there's no other way um, other than what we already do. But what if there is another way? What if um, there is a way beyond the hierarchy? What if there is a more generative, rhizomatic um, approach to learning that's possible? And I think um, I've seen English teachers really kind of spearhead this um, more than teachers of other disciplines because English um, almost, English is less hierarchical as a discipline. Ollie, I'm going to bring you in again. Okay. Because I've been wittering. But how hierarchical do you think English is? in terms of English teaching, English as a discipline. Do you think it needs to be taught in a really hierarchical way, like this first, then this, then this? Or is it much more rhizomatic? Is it much more of a web with mu with many interconnected nodes? God, this is a divisive question. It is, and that's why I ask it. <laughs> I want people in the chat to weigh in as well. Um, I would say with some things you uh, you could benefit from a hierarchical approach so you you know by by building on um you know you you lay the foundations for the exploration of a particular text and then you build on it and you build on it and you eventually create a hierarchy that way but i think um i don't i don't think a hierarchical structure would work say for poetry for example mm. i don't think i don't think a hierarchical way of teaching would would suit that particular medium Mm. Well, that's my opinion anyway. Well, Tab has weighed in here. A department is a distributed system of nodes, classrooms, with the same goals. But everybody is kind of doing their own thing and it all webs in and networks. It led me to think, actually, do you know what? I'm aware that it's, uh, oh, goodness me, it's 9.10. So I am going to play the news and advert again. I shall return. Goodbye. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.
winstonswish.org. Right, I am returned. So I want to finish off by talking a bit about evil. All right. So I'm going to talk a bit about how things can go wrong within a hierarchy. And that is in no way linked to year twos, as Jasmine has just mentioned. Now, I want to talk about the, um, the Milgram experiment. For those who aren't aware, I'm sure most people are, but the Milgram experiment in the 1960s sees Stanley Milgram, um, based on um, thinking about, um, you know, Nazi, is this about taxidermy? It's not, I'm afraid, Carolina. Um, the Milgram experiment sees Stanley Milgram see if people will obey um, figures who appear to be um, authority figures. So in this case, um, scientists, well, actors in white coats, um, Sorry, note from my mother, Deleuze and Guattari need more explanation than casually dropping rhizome references in. Yes, you're right. And I actually found this during a staff meeting the other day. It's not the marshmallow experiment. So this is where um, you have somebody who we <laughs> Um So basically, to sum it up, you have a scientist who is actually an actor who claims to be doing um, a, an experiment. And basically, they... Um, tell the subject to um, administer electric shocks to someone they can't see if they get answers to questions wrong. And the electric shocks get more and more lethal. And the outcome of it was, I think it was at 65% of, um, of subjects le administered lethal um, electric shocks just because they were told to by somebody who seemed to be in a position of authority, somebody in a white coat with a clipboard looking like a scientist. And it was used as a way to explore, you know, how ordinary people could do extraordinary evil, you know, like during the Holocaust. So for example, um, Milgram um, said the following, in his 1963 paper, he invoked the Nazis and he said, obedience as a determinant of behavior is of particular relevance to our time. Gas chambers were built, death camps were guarded, daily quotas of corpses were produced. These inhumane policies may have originated in the mind of a single person, but they could only be carried out on a massive scale if a very large number of persons obeyed orders. So we've got this really nasty um, version of hierarchy, potentially. Now, Tab says, the thing I hope you're about to say is that the Milgram experiment did not show what everyone says it shows. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? Because... Originally, people say it proves that we've all got this kind of evil residing within us. But that's that's thank you, Jasmine. Thank you very much. Um, we've got this evil kind of residing latently within us. Um, my reading has led me to to see that we're not quite sure what it shows anymore. What it seems to perhaps show us is that people are very, very complex, um, you know, People, for example, in the um, in the Milgram experiment originally might have known that it was um, that it was, um, you know, all a bit of a fake, you know. And also people saying they want to stop and not stopping is a little bit different to people willingly, cacklingly um, pulling a lever to shock somebody else. Um, but what we can certainly see from the Milgram experiment is this argument that oh, it was because the educational setting they've been told they were helping science by doing this experiment. And yes, that's the other thing is that why wouldn't you trust, why wouldn't you trust 
somebody who says you are going to do a greater good. Um, but maybe this was, you know, this is part of the problem is if you can convince people that they're doing a good thing, that the overall outcome of what they're doing is going to be good in a rather utilitarian sort of way, it can be quite easy to um, manipulate them. So schools are evil. We are helping you. Um, therefore, do as you're told. Um, I suppose to kind of wrap things up, um, as we've got 15 minutes left, maybe schools are evil. But I think that what's really, really key is that within hierarchies, we do tend to use other people. Um, they're beneficial when we learn from each other within them. Um, knowledge can trickle down a hierarchy. But when we see somebody at the top of a hierarchy as somebody who can pass knowledge onto us, onto us, we no longer think of them as an individual. We think of them in terms of their function. We think of them as a metaphor. So, for example, when you're standing at the front of your class, you're no longer seen as a person, really. You are seen as a teacher. You are seen as a function, you know. Now, that's fine. But you become this kind of walking metaphor. Dehumanization, though, can be really dangerous, even if it's positive, because it can lead to the kind of the fixing of, um, of hierarchy. Tab says the more elite, the more evil, because the students are more likely to believe in the authority. Yeah. And this is the thing, is that it is all about fixing that place within the hierarchy. And it goes right back to what I was saying earlier. Is it prestige? Is it dominance? But the more that that hierarchy becomes fixed, the more people start to believe in it and the more it starts to perpetuate. We start to make value judgments of people. We start to look at not who they are, but what they are. And we start to say, how useful is that person? How much did they contribute to society? Read Heigl. I shall. Thank you. Um, and we start to say, if they contributed less than I did, then what does that make them? They belong beneath me in society. And this is where we get into the idea of, um, of collective narcissism. You know, we start to think that our group is superior, that our group is deserving of, of great, of better treatment because we have contributed more to society. Because we think of people as functions, we think of people as these kind of uh, walking, walking metaphors and not as, um, as individuals. So... I'm going to dedicate then the uh, the final um, part of this show then to whoever would like to call in. And what I would really, really like is for people to tell me um, their experiences of hierarchies within schools. I'd love to see um, if anybody would like to call in. I'm looking at you, Hugh, in particular. Hugh, are you still there? Where are you, Hugh? You are still there, aren't you, Hugh? I would love to see people's experiences of hierarchies within schools, in particular, uh, what are your experiences of hierarchies within um, classrooms? Um, and how do you think the dynamic between a teacher and a student should work best to facilitate learning? And what do you make of um, hierarchies um, in, in schools themselves? What are the positives and negatives? And I'm hoping somebody will voluntarily call in now and tell me about their experiences of hierarchies, both within the classroom and within their school as a whole. Who have we got? Who's going to be brave? Aha! Hello. I have pressed a button. 
I've pressed a button to allow a caller in, and it's not happened. Yeah, ah, I'm yes. here. Hello. Hello, I'm Sharon. I've just been like putting loads of things in the chat about hedging, etc. Yes, tell us your perspective. Okay, so at school, I was vile and evil, and I hated it because I just thought it was people doing things to me. I never wanted to become a teacher because I just thought schools were the root of all evil. And eventually, I, I became a teacher, and I am now, and I've been teaching for 20 years, unbelievably so, and love it. But I don't have a hierarchy in my classroom. Hmm. I I don't teach. I've never taught in a school. I must say that I only teach post sixteen, but I do teach loads of inner city kids. So I'm not teaching in a posh six form. Hmm. I teach in a place that has. I, I teach in an inner city six form, and I want that room to be about sharing the learning and. I think that that is the best thing that can ever happen. I have never had in 20 years, and I'm, and I'm not bragging, this isn't a brag, a problem with behaviour. I've okay. very rarely had any confrontations, but I'm still the best person to break up a fight if it happens outside of my room. But I do believe that we need to go into that room and want to share that learning. It's not about us. It's not about a dictatorship. It's not about someone walking into that room knowing everything. It's about the empowerment. And, yeah, that's what's helped me to get through 20 years. That's really interesting. So how do you facilitate that? Very much, very much I am on the commission model. Uh, it's what I do. Uh, I my degree is in English, and I manage um, English, music, drama, dance, etc. And it's quite easy to facilitate those um, commission-based projects in those areas. But I'm also working in a wider project to help those sort of commission-based learning across a um, wider range of subjects because you get students to do the learning, they do the research, they feed back, they produce the projects and you spin the plates and feed things in. They take responsibility for it and they also take responsibility for it in groups. Not always easy. I know people go, oh, it's great work. Oh my God, someone's up. No, it doesn't work like that. You also have to teach them that if someone's not there, they've got to take control. And you build employability skills into all of this and world skills and life skills and community skills. It works a treat. I love it. Would you think this would work with, say, year sevens or year eights? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't taught year sevens or eights. I am a mother, though. And... I actually think that, you know, the commission model of teaching was actually more intended for year sevens and eights than it was for post-16. So there you go. Post-16 adapted it and universities have also adapted that model better. But Dorothy Heathcote, as you well know, 
she used that more in primary. And you, you surely you know Tim Taylor, absolute superstar and, and champion of um, the commission model. Um, yeah. Yes. Sorry. And yet teaching seems to have moved towards a more direct instruction teacher at the front model, hasn't it? So why do you think teaching has moved in that other direction? Because of Michael Gove and lots of other problems, you know, it didn't work for me when I was at school, when I was sat in front of those classrooms, it was evil. Um, And it is a model that people think that that's going to work. I'm not convinced. I still see no, uh, I haven't seen kids come to me feeling that they've been empowered by that model. I have to de-school kids when they come to me. I have to get them again learning for themselves and enjoying learning. I really don't feel that that model works. I, I can't, I'm not an expert. I haven't been in schools. I don't think I'm suitable to work in schools. But, you know, I and I just think that is so sad. It's the pouring. What what did Dorothy Heathcote used to say? You either pour it with a jug or you mix it all up in a cauldron. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely mix it all up in a cauldron. Does that Do you think that we necessarily need teachers? Like is learning an individual activity? Like if students can learn for themselves. So just to go off on a bit of a tangent. So <laughs> I I don't really think I ever really learned anything at school. Like, as in, what I mean is, I think everything <laughs> I've learned, I've learned for myself, if that makes sense. Like, I've learned it through exploring and questioning and reading. Like, I'm not sure anyone's ever yes! taught me anything. Like, is that what you're getting at? Yes, because you've got to empower people to want to learn from themselves. If you keep pouring stuff and regurgitating stuff... It's never proper learning. So absolutely, yes. I did, I, you know, I was one of those kids that I, I managed to get like A's in every, because I had a photographic memory and I could just regurgitate stuff when I was at school and I hated it and I nicked off and I was the naughtiest kid. I think that's what makes me a better teacher actually because I was the naughtiest kid in school. So I get the naughty kids. Um, I kind of get where they're going. But absolutely, yes, you've got to. It's about no. You can't. <laughs> what is a te- what is a teacher? What is it? your teacher's soul is about learning to facilitate and support other people to learn, whatever age they are, whether they're five or they're fifty-five. This you is deeply unfashionable. I'm not. I'm not arguing at all. I'm just very interested in what people think. But this is. This sounds. If I think about lots of the traditional approaches that I see on my Twitter timeline every day, um, this sounds like the antithesis of that. This sounds very unfashionable. Do you find that you are rather unfashionable now as an educational practitioner? Absolutely not. I'm incredibly fashionable in lots of places. I'm incredibly fashionable in my college. Um, I'm a head of faculty, so I've I've used that model, and I've um, you know I I started off as a you know a curriculum lead in in drama, but I now manage 
English language and literature. My degree was actually from University of Nottingham in English, mm. so I'm, I'm experienced enough. But no, I don't find that that's a problem. And my, my approach is supported very much through in my college. And um, I go, I, I also mentor and support teachers as mm. well to do that because the results get better if you take that approach to teaching because the kids take ownership of their own learning. So I know it seems deeply unfashionable, but that is because, again, I use that word hegemony again, we've been convinced that the only way to teach kids is to ram stuff down their throat so they can regurgitate it. And that is weird. Mm. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm really sorry we're almost out of time. And I just want to bring in our guest, um, Ollie Haley. Um, Ollie, hello. hello. Sorry to leave you sort of hanging around for ages. My it's quite right. it's, it's, show it's been is fascinating. just to sort of see what happens, to be honest. I have a loose structure. Um, so, <laughs> Roger's history. I can hear the so-called trads having a meltdown from here. Well, we'll put it on Twitter, Tom, and see what happens. Um, <laughs> I should run away. Um, now, Ollie, so... Just sum up from us then, then in terms of the hierarchy of the classroom, what is the ideal relationship then for you between student and teacher? Could you just describe that, sum that up, your vision of the perfect relationship between students and teacher? What is it? Explain it to us. Oh, that's, a pr that's profound. In, okay. Me. Okay, my my vision for the ideal classroom is uh, where I would go into the classroom, and uh, obviously as an English teacher, I want my I want to be able to um, communicate, convey my passion, my enthusiasm for the subject, and I want that to um, I, I want that to kind of spill over into the students, and I also want to be able to show them different ways in which they can approach the same thing in order to develop personal responses and their own interpretations and really kind of revel in the joys of um, language and all of that stuff, language and literature, um, although not just the English language because it's rubbish. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that, that's what I want. So much like the Falconer and Falconer's Apprentice, I want to be able to show my students ways of approaching something, not just one single way, but different ways, different pathways mm. into, the same, into the same thing, um, but ultimately with different outcomes. This is the thing with English teachers, just to kind of bring it back to a recent Twitter spat, is that English teachers seem to want to do lots more sort of showing and shepherding and cajoling and thinking and suggesting than perhaps teachers of other disciplines. Maybe this is a war we must continue to fight. Fight the war. <laughs> I've been Alex. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much to world's sexiest teacher, Ollie Haley, um, in particular. <laughs> Um, it's, it's official because I saw it in Sexy Teacher Mag. Oh, no, I can't carry on with that. It's disgusting. <laughs> right. Anyway, Tab volunteers as tribute. Of course, she does. Um, he is fit. You are, Robert. You are, Ronnie. Yeah. It's, 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 that's why you're the poster boy for my new academy that doesn't exist. Right. I am out of time. Thank you so much to Sharon. Thank you so much to Ollie. Thank you so much to everybody in the chat. I've had an absolute blast. I hope it made sense. I'm moving house in the morning. Oh, my God. Take care. Goodbye. Go away. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then little...